Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is a very relevant and important topic, so please, please listen up. Uh, we have a real specialist in the world of of brain injury and, and traumatic life uh, losses. She's someone who has lived experience in, in the mental health field as a counsellor, um, but also has lived experience as a family member as well. Uh, so very, very excited to share uh, Janelle Breeze Biagioni uh, with our audience today. She has a very, very important message for everyone to hear. And I think as you listen to her, be reminded that we all have agency. You know, we we all actually have the opportunity to move towards helping to better the future, not just for us, our loved ones, and our communities. So thank you for joining us today and sharing some of your, your great work with us. Thank you, Mark. I, it's exciting to be here. I'm always thrilled when I have the opportunity to share a message and be a voice for those who feel that they don't have a voice or don't have the energy to be the voice. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? And what led you down this road of of working in in the counseling field? Well, it's been a long journey. Um, I actually was born in Rivers, Manitoba. I'm an Air Force brat. I was born in Grace's nursing home in the dining room there and uh, basically had to sleep in the drawer from a buffet or something that they had but that's where I came from uh, my dad was in the air force and the army and we moved around a, a little bit but settled into British Columbia when I was about four years old I'm the middle child of seven certainly um, our mom probably was the strongest influence in my life in terms of helping us to see people where they're at and being a helper when needed and learning to ask for help as well. So that's how it came to be. And had I planned to be a counselor? No, I had always wanted to be a kindergarten teacher is what I, I really thought I'd love to do. So I really love children. And that just wasn't an opportunity for me to go to university, do those kind of things. But I always had it in my mind that I would do something to help people. And I had these ideas as a child that I was going to run telethons and make a lot of money for people who needed it. I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. I'd love to. But yeah, I went into counseling it very much through the back door in terms of that's not where I plan to be. I married uh, when I was uh, 19 years old. I married a police officer in the RCMP. Uh, we started our family when I was 21. I had my first daughter and my second daughter when I was 23. And we moved around a little bit in British Columbia. And Certainly in those days, and probably is reflective today too, that the RCMP were our family, they were the employer. And so our work was around 
supporting him to be the best police officer he could be in and fulfill those duties. So my aspirations in a career kind of were on the back burner, but I did look at things that interested me and, and what did I want to do? And I thought that I would like to do accounting. I loved numbers. And so I actually started there, entered into the Certified General Accountants Program and uh, was excited about my future with numbers, as boring as that can sound, but it has served <laughs> me well. I will tell you that, that you always need your math skills and certainly running a nonprofit. I can write a budget. I can read a budget. I can read a statement. So all of that has served me well. But what happened when I was in my third year of study, so it's a five-year program. So I was in a third year of studies. My eldest brother, who was 39 years old at the time, suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And literally, it blew his brain apart. There was enough of the brain stem left to automate his vital organs. So we were told right from onset that he would not survive. He was in a coma for two weeks. And then my mom and my sister-in-law made the decision, rightfully so, that, you know, he had to come off life support because there was no brain activity. And that was very challenging, of course, for his wife, his three young children, but also for our family. And for me, I was extremely close to him. Uh, he was the eldest, I was the middle child, but he, Brian was, you know, kind of our North Star in the family. We all looked up to him. We all aspired to be like him. So we had had loss in our family before that too, with grandparents passing and aunts and, you know, some tragedy there. But this was very, very close in our immediate family and very challenging. So his death really put me on a mental health downward spiral. I struggled with my grief so much with him. And I had, you know, my husband's brother had been murdered a few years before that. And I recognized then that that, that shock of somebody being so close to you that there didn't seem to be a lot of information about how do you navigate that level of grief and the questions why, why can this happen to him, to us, to our families? What's going on? What does it mean for us? So I really struggled after my brother's death, trying to come to terms with that. And, but I also tried to sidestep my grief because I was very aware that my mom had lost a child. His wife was widowed. He had three yeah. children who had lost a father. And I was trying not to call attention to my right. grief. I'm, right. I'm going to be there to support them. And that didn't serve me mentally but also didn't serve me well physically and I ended up getting quite sick and had to take some time off work and it just you know the doctor said like you just you have to take time off work and I ended up developing an ovarian cyst and I had to be hospitalized and have surgery and it was in the surgery I developed this rare pneumonia and so it delayed my return to work but it also put me in a place of what I say, God putting his thumb on me and saying, you are going to pay attention to how you're feeling and you're going to find a way to work through this. So one of the things that had come up, my employer, of course, it was tax season and, you know, nothing's convenient in tax season, right. regardless that it was a death. It wasn't convenient for my employer. Uh, and I was aware of that, that I never wanted to be in a position again where I had to justify the need to be with my family. Yeah, so I actually left. Yeah, I left my job and I continued on with my studies for a bit, but I declared to my husband, you. I'm stay, oh, I'm stay I home. really quickly. Thank you. Obviously, you work in this. Case, so, but thank you for your vulnerability. 
in sharing those experiences because I know those can still be triggers at times. And I just want to thank you um, for your vulnerability and sharing those experiences. And for people listening, what I want everyone to understand is that help is possible, right? Um, support is available. And it can take even from someone as well versed <laughs> as Janelle, you know, total specialist in this work. Even she had a hard time putting her needs first. And, you know, I have struggled with that too, for sure. And and that's why I have a close circle. I'm constantly like, okay, what do I need to do? Like, this is part of why I was saying, I'm, I'm going on a trip, going camping. I'm very excited about it, but I also feel bad about it, right? Because I'm like, I got so much work to do, Ooh, right? But if I'm not taking care of myself, then how could I possibly consider trying to take care of anybody else. Do you want to talk just a little bit to that and your experience with that part of it? Because I'm sure you have a lot of expertise in this area. Yeah, like it's certainly, I mean, personally and professionally, you know, we we measure what we're doing against what's acceptable in the outside world. And, you know, a year after my brother died, my husband died. He had a brain injury, hit on a police motorcycle, lived for five months and died from complications. And I remember the year after trying so hard to just be a mom to two children who had lost their dad and, you know, putting those roles and responsibility first and foremost over my own sense of well-being and struggling to say, I need help. I don't, I don't know that I'm doing this right. I don't know that I can survive and be the mother to these children you know, there's risk in saying that to people. I don't know that I can do this right. So I struggled with that. And then trying to find help was difficult. I mean, this is, you know, we're going back 33, 34 years. And, you know, we still were in that place of not being open about asking for help. But I am a reader. So I went looking for material. And it was actually when my brother-in-law was murdered, someone said to me, you need to read Elizabeth Google Ross's book on death and dying. And while that was about working with people who were dying and opening the conversation between them and clinicians, it gave me some understanding how chaotic grief can be. And then I was able to kind of well, find some grace and solace for myself in that, that, you know, I'm not as screwed up as I think I am. This is pretty normal for what's happened in our family and it's going to take time. So as I became a counselor and I, I did that 12 years ago, got my designation as a counselor and, and it was more around my writing. I was looking to kind of build that skill and decided this is kind of, you know, ridiculous that you're a counselor and not counseling. So I have worked with people. And my priority has been around those traumatic life losses, be it death, physical death, or death of a personality, death of a relationship, those kind of things. And working with people to see is so hard to say, I need to put myself first. I need to step aside from what your needs are to take care of myself. Because if I'm not here wholeheartedly, you know, physically, yeah. mentally, Spiritually, if I'm not intact, I really can't be the support to the people that I need to be. But the other is forgiving ourselves for being the ones left here to live. And that was a real healing thing for me when my husband died, my first husband. I've been widowed twice, but experienced that the second time too. But the first time it was like, 
I have to forgive myself that I'm the one here to live and my brother's not and my husband's not um, because they lived until they died. They may not have lived as long as they wanted or have accomplished everything that they wanted. And I may not have been in their life in the way I wanted to when they died. You know, we hadn't achieved everything we wanted to, but they lived. They lived until the moment they died. And so I try to help people to find that place where they can say, I too deserve to live until I die, not just exist, but to really live and thrive. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. So as you think about, you know, tell us a bit about the organization that you've been a part of, of founding uh, and what the purpose for that organization is, because it is totally on purpose with kind of your, your why. Mm -hmm. So the Constable Gerald Breeze Center for Traumatic Life Losses, or we call it CGB Center for Traumatic Life Losses, was founded by my adult daughters, myself and my second husband to commemorate the 25th anniversary of my first husband's passing. And it really was I, I felt like, what have I done? What have I done? I know I had been working hard and I'd written books and uh, a counselor, but it was like, what have I really done to change systemically what happened in the brain injury community? Because I could see that, yes, there's been some progress, but there's been, there's more gaps developing in the services and supports that, you know, need to be addressed. So I, that was where I came from. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to start this and try and be, a voice for people who need that and feel that they can't do it or are not in the place to do it. I wanted to really push the agenda about availability of counseling for survivors and family members that had really not been looked at it until I started pushing it saying that there is so much grief and loss after brain injury that and it wasn't being addressed. And I'm not saying that as a counselor because it wasn't that I was looking for business because honestly, my children will tell you I give away more counseling than I've ever been paid for, right? Yeah. That is not why I do it. But it is it is a piece. It's like you're asking people to go from this life to this new life. It's like asking them to cross a river without giving them a life jacket, a raft, or a boat, right? We need yeah. to help them in the process to look at who they were before this happened, who they are now that this has happened, and where they want to go, and how we're going to build a bridge and help them to cross the bridge. And often in my presentations, I'll say to people like, you know, just take a look at how we build bridges. We don't build the bridge saying, well, we're not building the bridge in this city because people won't cross it. We build it because we know people will cross it when they're ready to cross the bridge, right? So when that bridge opens, there will be people at the ribbon cutting wanting to be the first ones to cross the bridge. There'll be others probably like me who will hold back wanting to make sure the structure stands and doesn't fall <laughs> apart and they'll wait <laughs> until they're ready, right? Let a few million yeah. people go across and then I'll join. But yeah. the point is the bridge is there. The bridge is there. And when people are ready to cross it, they will cross the bridge. And we need to not have our agenda about when people come for services and supports, we need to be on their agenda and ready to respond. Amazing. Amazing. So tell me more then. So here's this organization is founded. You have this lived experience. You you also can appreciate and understand that it can take time for one to move towards dealing with these losses and this internal grief to get external support through building that bridge. So what are the tangible actions that are taken when we decide to build this organization and found this organization? Tell us more. What do we 
actually what are we doing right right what 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 did we start doing and what are we doing today so what we started right away was to get the word out there that we're here you know we we are pushing for counseling province-wide canada-wide that that you know to educate people on the layers of loss and how that can impact people the other piece for me was taking action around mental health addiction and brain injury and those intersections because listening so much to what's happening with homelessness knowing what the stats are about people who are incarcerated and you know thinking like why very much like Gabor Mate you know the person's not the problem the problem's the problem and they're people and how did they get to where they are and so looking at all this funding going into different things, I feel like it's like, okay, I've got my finger in the dike over here and I've got my finger in this hole over here, and but not looking at, okay, why is the dam beginning to burst, right? And yeah. it's like, let's back the bus up and take a look at how people got to this place and start to serve them where they're at, how they need, and for however long they need those services and supports. I get it. It's dollars. And so making them short term and transitional. But you know what? A person living with a brain brain injury, this isn't short term or transitional for them. And it impacts so many things. So that was our big action was, okay, we are going to really take the lead here to start bringing people together. And I went to Ottawa, presented at Brain Injury Canada's conference. And I felt like I was the first one. And I just, this, I really felt called to go and speak about these intersections because it was more like, can somebody tell me why I'm going crazy about this? Because nobody else seems to be talking about it. And I really expected people to say, hey, settle down. You know, it's not an issue. But what happened were people lined up for the two days saying, we need your voice. We need your voice. We need you to do something. And I didn't know what to do. So when my daughter, my eldest daughter was with me on our flight back home, I said to her, you know, I don't know what to do, but I do know one of my superpowers is to bring people together and to mobilize people. And that's what I can do. Because if I can bring people together, there's people way smarter than me that know how to change this. So I just need to find people. Kind of like feel the dreams, build it and they'll come, right? So we started with a National Day of Collaboration, very small scale here in Victoria, where we came together, brought people together, some government representatives, state, community stakeholders, and just talked about what we need. From there, I was able to promote to the Ministry of Mental Health and Addiction uh, that I wanted to do a Heads Together think tank to bring people provincially together to talk about what the needs are in their community. Very, I'm very, very clear that Victoria cannot tell Haida Gwaii what's important to them or what will work, but nor can Prince George tell Victoria the best way to serve people, that we have to all be part of the conversation. And I'm big on the fact that every level of government needs to be involved for different reasons. So we did the, and it was just when COVID hit. So we um, pivoted very quickly, did Heads Together Think Tank for workshops that, you know, happened throughout the month of June, which is Brain Injury Awareness Month, talking about real people, real stories, what happens in communities. And we had a very clear report with actions from that for the government, which said, we need more education. We need more training. We need more research. Um, when Kenneth, which is the Canadian Agency in Drug and Technology and Health, did an environmental scan. It was presented at the Heads Together Think Tank, and it showed that there was really no research on the intersections of brain injury, mental health, and addiction. Yeah. So went back to the Ministry of Vancouver Foundation and said, we need research and we need to bring communities together. So we were able to get funding for a three-year research project, which is the BC Consensus Building. Yeah. And that, for me, came about 
the con there's a, a consensus statement on concussion and sports that was tabled in Berlin. I think they're on the sixth yeah. revision. It's like, why do we not have a consensus on best practices? What are the research priorities? What are the community needs? And we need to bring people together to hear about what's working in their community. It's not just about what's not working. It's what is working. And how do we scale that up throughout the province, right? So I don't know. I'll just tell you, like, one of the maybe misconceptions I had at the beginning was, like, I'm thinking in Victoria how challenging it is to get services and, and for people to get those doors open. If they have a brain injury, they go for mental health or addiction. It's like, oh, that's a brain injury. Deal with that first. Then come back here. Thinking that what's that like in a smaller community? What was different in the smaller communities is that Susie works with Tina across the street from each other. Susie and Tina's kids go to the same school. They shop in the same grocery store. They come to community events in small town and they know each other. So it's not really an issue for Susie to phone Tina and say, hey, I have this client. What do I do about this? How do I get services? Right. The challenge for them is they don't have the services. Right. But the connections are there. So in cities where we have services, we don't necessarily have the connections and we have barriers to people accessing those services. So all of the BC consensus building has been around how do we serve British Columbians better and open doors. And so some of the actions that have we've had two consensus days now, we just wrapped one up last week. Those emerging action items have been consistent. Address housing, create an integrated system where people do not have barriers to access services that they would like to see hubs created where people particularly when you listen to people with lived experience saying to you gosh like i had a physio appointment and then i had to go to speech language on the same day yeah. and i had to take handy dart and it took eight hours to go to two appointments because there's this big window of wait time could they not just have a place where i could go and get my services and meet up with these people so those have been emerging themes and that we need ongoing research. So each consensus day, our reports are having actionable items because we have said to the government, and I was clear right from the beginning, we've had 30, 40 years of reports and action not being taken. I ethically will not ask for funding for something and people having to wait another four yeah. or five years for action. Well, thank you. What's, thank the action you. Year? What's the action this year? Thank you for that action bias, because I think that's one of the things in talking with so many people with lived experience and providers also, like the providers with lived experience. Many have sadly kind of given up, like yeah. like nothing's ever going to change. So um, we're going to have to just accept this. And, yeah. and then what happens from there, and this is the part that you and I connected in an earlier call very well, and we got connected through really interesting our two worlds melding together a remarkable human who works in this space in nursing and as a coroner her daughter um had the intersection of addiction and brain injury occur and my background as our listeners may know is more clinical in that you know i kind of focused in, in neurorehabilitation and cognitive rehabilitation and this amazing woman had to look far and wide to try and get access to services that may be able to help her daughter restore some of her cognitive function so that she could be a participating member of society again. And that road for her was so hard to find any level of potential service that could help her, that could give her an opportunity for her daughter. And the work you're doing, thank you for doing this work, 
because it is very hard to do what you're doing. I can only imagine. And you hear a lot of, you can't do that. And that's not possible. And that silo doesn't speak to that silo. And Judy doesn't speak to Wendy. Well, no, the only reason Judy doesn't speak to Wendy is we haven't done what you do so well. We haven't brought all the stakeholders, invited them into a room and said, what are we doing? How could we do this better? And what are our goals? And how can each of us help to move towards achieving this goal? So thank you again for for your, again, that action bias you have to to do something about this massive issue. I mean, it's so wide ranging. People, it's shocking when we explain it, right? With you and me and our experiences in this work, it's so wide ranging, this <laughs> population. And, you know, th- what we've done with Consensus Day is to ensure that it is shared power in the room. So yeah. we do target not only families and survivors who are living this experience, but community stakeholders, government representatives, service providers, bringing them together. And I set my my tables up so that there is a mix of these individuals at the table. And I explain to people like we are not coming from a top-down approach where government is saying this is how we know it best works. And we're not coming from a bottom-up where people with lived experiences are saying this is the only way it's going to work. We are trying our best to have a vertical slice model where we're all coming to meet in the middle And we're saying to people, like, embrace convention, which is where we all start. This is how it's been done. This is the way it's always been done. But invite innovation into the room. And let's look for the best way to serve people. And in that, I do encourage people with lived experience to be curious about the people at their table and ask, why are the barriers in place for me to get services that I need from you? What in your job is preventing you from giving the services that we need? And then asking the others yeah. to be curious yes. and an open yes. heart. Like, what is it what? that you experienced trying to get to me? Yes. Like, so what you've said there, I want to help. I think I feel like you called, right? That's what I've, I've learned too much over the years. And I've worked with the public and the private sector. And there's wonderful people in both. <laughs> and and there's a lot of people who sadly have kind of given up too in both too, because they've just said, look, it's, it's too hard. It's too hard to change. And I remember in university getting exposed to Drucker and, and the whole process management, right? And I love your focus on process is what I learned on the clinical side is there are many uh, clinics and providers that are stating that they are interdisciplinary but they're actually multidisciplinary and those are very different things and they're extremely frustrating for providers and they're also extremely frustrating for taxpayers and citizens and and stakeholders because it's exactly what you said if you know linda has had a brain injury okay and she has some level of service from extended health and public health and her symptoms are related to memory attention planning and organizing and some orthopedic issues. Where do we go? It's really problematic. And how do we establish baseline measurement? Very problematic. Is it neuropsychology first? Is it GP first? <laughs> right? And then we go down. And this is the world that you and I both understand very well. But for our listeners, this is where we can attack this problem. If we can find a better path, I believe you can disagree with me because you know a lot about this topic, but I think that's a great opportunity to start there. And, you know, that's something that I 
you and I talked earlier, we're both, you know, from British Columbia. I'm in the Vancouver, greater Vancouver area. Beautiful, the south, beautiful Victoria. But we have homeless issues and brain injury issues that are significant in two rather affluent first world uh, cities. But we have a serious issue here um, that what we're doing with great effort. You, meet, you mentioned Gabor uh, and know his work very well, know him. Each of these people that we see in Vancouver, we're famous for many things. And one of the things we're famous for is our serious, serious homeless problem on, in East Vancouver on Hastings Street. It's a very serious issue. Each of those people, 50%, we can argue the data, uh, 50%, up to 50% have a brain injury. Well, where? Like, I, I surely, by doing, supporting your work that you're doing and bringing the right people into the room together, we can work towards truly changing this, but it's going to take everybody, right? It's I, I believe it's going to take everybody at the table together, locking those arms, saying it may not change today. And I already know people are doing this. There's some remarkable people. Dr. Will Panenka is one that I know, a great guy. He's researched this. He's a wonderful human. He's trying his darndest to change the world. Uh, and yeah. there's so many people together. If we could just get everybody together to create, this is what you're doing to create this shared vision and make it measurable and accountable, it's going to change because we're too much talent, to. too much talent yeah. to not make it happen. There's too much talent. But the problem is we're competing. It's exactly what you said. You nailed it. It's exactly what you said. The speech pathologist is competing for the time of that individual along with the physiotherapist, along with, well, the clock for the patient is running. And the more comorbidities that occur in that 24-hour day, they compound too, right? And and that clock is always ticking. So if we can get better on that front end and then deploy services faster, comorbidities are going to reduce and we're going to get to the what happened to you. You mentioned Gabor, right? We can get to the what happened to you earlier if the individual actually is at that time where they want to move towards crossing that bridge. Exactly, exactly. The other thing that you mentioned, which is so important, is about people are tired and they give up. And part of what I'm trying to do with this movement as well is build unification in the province through all levels of government, people lived experience, service providers, because I honestly believe that, yeah, we're tired and we're frustrated. And many of us have been around multiple decades. I'm, you know, 34 years I've been doing this. I'm not tired. I'm not tired. And I won't let myself get tired of doing this, but we are tired and we're frustrated. But I feel like we could unify the voice and link arms and walk shoulder to shoulder that when you're tired, you can say you're tired and you can pass the torch. We'll carry your torch for you and we will carry you. And then when you're ready to take up your own torch again, you're linked with us, you're carrying your torch, someone else can rest and we'll carry them too. Yeah. yeah. Don't, break, don't break the chain. Let's all march together. You know, this is this is a calling. Like to anybody else that's listening to this, we're going to leave your contact information towards the end here and they'll be clickable in the show notes, everybody. So we'll make it really easy. We got to work together. You know, we got to work together. Public, private, doesn't matter. The, the problem is, I'm, I'm like you, I feel the same way. Like, we see small wins here and there, and we see some good things happen, and it's wonderful. I love it. But I feel like there's just so much work to do. <laughs> like, like, so if you want to be a part of something that could actually truly change the way things are done, 
in the province of British Columbia and beyond, get involved. Take that action. If you're in a job or in a career or whatever it might be, where you may not have the agency to take the step to make some decisions, to do some things, to really see some of the change. Uh, it's not going to be fast. There's no fast on this. This problem, you know, we've seen it, right, in so many places. My journey into this started really with football and concussions and looking at what concerned me the most about it was rest and some painkillers. And I'm looking at it going, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, that's not how yeah. I'm Like, when I tore my ACL, the plan was very functional and behavioral, and it was on me. It wasn't on t- sitting back and medicating. It was, no, you. this is a functional thing. You need it, and you, you got to use it. And with the brain, it couldn't even be more important. Yeah. The brain, there's a great quote. Who is it by again? It'll come to me. But uh, it was uh, the, the body's purpose, the body's sole purpose is to carry the brain around. <laughs> so yeah. you know, when we think about this work and your work, it's such a great opportunity to be a part of changing the way things are done and providing that access. Because this could be the 75-year-old grandmother who's had a stroke and has struggled with her aphasia ever since to the individual that had a history of concussion due to sport that went down a, a hard, a, a negative road because of low education and access to services to the individual in a, you know, motor vehicle accident dealing with the insurance company and lost their jobs, you know, and mm-hmm. everything in between. So this has such a massive, massive impact and it's under, it's underreported. It's not yeah. being talked about enough. We're yeah. talking about these things in silos. And, and we so need to move it out of an acute setting. Move it out of acute setting. Yes, community. Right? Because if, yeah. if it's considered only in the context of an acute setting, it's the medical model of assessing, diagnosing, and treating. And yep. then there's nothing. We need to extend that into community services because this, for people with a, you know, living this, this is a lifelong piece of their life that has changed and they may always need services and supports and they may need them intermittently and they may may need them short term but they need them is the point and we need to carry that through so that the other thing about that diagnostic and you mentioned that before too is like how do people find this is like what is emerging too as being why i say to government all the time brain injury is no longer a priority. It's no longer an urgent situation. It's an emergent crisis in this country and in British Columbia. But what we know about intimate partner violence and overdose survival, those stats, these are people who are not diagnosed with a brain injury initially. And so if you have women who have suffered multiple concussions, maybe over decades, never been treated medically, don't have the access to the services and supports that they need. Right. And so we have people or organizations like the Fridge Center for the Family in Victoria, who's providing those supports, and they have no funding for it. They have no funding whatsoever for it. And it's like, we need to change that, that yes, we have brain injury associations, and there's some funding going directly to them, but we need to fund agencies who are doing this work too. Yes. And And early, my big thing is earlier in the process, the quicker we, we all know early intervention is the way to reduce long-term impact. We all know this. Yeah. Everyone will agree on that. So let's act. Let's identify the right partners. Let's invite them to the table and let's do this. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, let's... The other thing about intervention, I'm trying my hardest to be loud to get people to see that intervention is prevention, right? That if we can intervene, provide, so let's take overdose survival, right? So if we have harm reduction and safe injection sites, that really is, that intervention is a prevention of more brain injury or possible death. That's a prevention. If we are able to work with people in the way that they need it, how they need it, we can prevent them from having a second and third brain injury, right? By assisting them to make better choices, to give them the compensatory strategies that they need. We can prevent a downcline in mental health by giving them the services and supports that they need and meet them where they're at, right? And, and help them move forward in life that our interventions can be prevention. It's not always about prevention, you know, first. Yes, bike helmets, seatbelts, those preventions work, but also looking at what is an intervention that is a prevention. So a good one, and I've been, you know, I get challenged on this all the time because I, I do know that the Gridge did a very small study looking at intimate partner violence. And in those interviews, identifying that the abusers themselves, how many of them had a brain injury as well? 100% of them had a brain injury. So if we want to end the violence and prevent this, we need intervention for the men. And in terms of that, it's dialectical behavior therapy, acceptance commitment therapy, it's services and supports to identify you have a brain injury. This is why life has been this way. This is how we're going to change it, learning emotional regulation. Those interventions become a prevention. Well, and so we need let me, I'm going to, I'm going to, challenge you slightly uh on this and okay. I, so or not challenge but maybe add some flavor <laughs> so you talk about something that that is really important in the first part of that which was providing the services putting in place the appropriate strategies uh that the individual may need and then you also talk about deploying so for the women uh, i don't want to generalize because uh, men and right. men you know, uh, other genders can also be victims. Uh, so right. we need to be sensitive to that. But also you talk about the men or the abuser in that case, also having the the brain injury and then deploying, you know, practices that may be able to help them, disciplines that may be able to help them. Where I have noticed, and I'm curious about your thought on this, where I have noticed a huge, huge, huge problem. And that this is not something, this is something that I got trained on by Barbara Aerosmith-Young which is restorative uh, cognitive rehabilitation rather than you know, compensatory. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity because my argument to you, strong argument to you with some of these men, in that case, again- Gender neutral. Yeah, yeah gender yeah. neutral. The abuser, if they've had a history of brain injury, may not have the cognitive capacity to actually benefit from the service that we're suggesting which is a waste of time and problematic. And that's what I, I found. It's something I've learned over the years that is a real serious issue. You know, the lexicon, the words really matter because when we say that with all, and these are remark way smarter people than me who are doing these cognitive rehabilitation programs, but they're working with someone that does not yet have the cognitive capacity to deploy the strategies that are being suggested. And then we just go around and around and around for both the victim and the abuser. So my thing that I that we would love to be a part of, and this is where you know we we talked about the SOAR project and Paul and Karen mutual friends who are doing amazing things. 
get restorative cognitive rehab earlier that's you know specific to the population in need to reduce the amount of triggers that's an amazing opportunity because it is and i get somewhat better so that was the only thing i just wanted to because i yeah, I, no, and i i agree with you i agree yeah. with you i do not believe in cookie cutter approaches i don't right like we need an array of services that can be customized to the individual for what they need and i can tell you as a counselor that when i've been successful and getting funding for an individual to have counseling about their brain injury i will be told from the funder health authority you can only talk about the brain injury nothing else and i'm like okay well one you don't understand grief then because people have unresolved grief and when a new event happens it begins to snowball and then i got to a place where i said to them okay i get it what i i will tell you is i don't work in a cookie cutter approach i will report to you in the cookie cutter fashion you like but you do not get my cookie recipe <laughs> and that's how i operate yeah. because it has to be customized to the individual and what they need and how they need it when they need it meeting them where they're at right well so where they're at what we're gonna have to do is we're gonna have to do another one of these because and thank you for being just so generous with your time what i would like to do is i I would like to ask just a couple of quick questions here okay question number one and i think i may know the answer but i'm usually wrong when i make any sort of an assumption what are one or maybe two of your greatest influences in this work of influencing me or yeah, yeah influencing yeah, just, me. could be yeah. a book, well, could I, be a person, could be anything. Yeah, I would have to say it's the hundreds of thousands of heroes that are walking this journey. Right. I I there are they are the rock stars, they are the ones that inspire me, that refill my gas tank. Like they are the ones I and because I'm very much and I learned this part of my training as a counselor I have a certificate in death and grief studies that I went to Colorado five times to work with Dr. Alan Wolfelt. And his he taught me, he taught all of his students to approach people with a teach me attitude. Teach me how mm. this has impacted you. Teach me how this has changed your life. And I've over the 12 years of counseling, I approach every client in that way. And I always learn something from them. So I would have to say the people who live this experience have been my greatest influencers. I love that. What a great answer. Holy smokes. Totally. I couldn't agree more. I do not speak as elegantly as you. Uh, but yeah, that 100%. Those are the heroes. Yeah. So with people who want to get a hold of you, they want to support your work. How do they go about doing them? So our website is traumaticlifelosses.com and they also can go to bcconsensusonbraininjury.com but traumaticlifelosses.com we have a contact page on there they can email me janelle at traumaticlifelosses.com try to be as responsive as I can I'm very approachable very approachable and you know also with BC Brain Injury Association I look after brainstreams.ca which is their website which is the provincial website that has resources there provincially so our work there is to help people navigate the system and find where they need to be so they can reach me at any one of those places yeah well i just i really want to thank you for your commitment to this and really going all in to create a better future and you know they the way you're doing this is hard it's very challenging it's it's there's so many obstacles <laughs> but i appreciate your your can do attitude and your collaborative attitude i think that's a really exciting invitation that you've extended and uh, i want for us to continue this dialogue to understand how how 
me and we can help further with this because this is something that can be improved. I thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I thank you. I thank you. Uh, because these are the these kind of conversations are what will spread the word and encourage people and inspire people to join the march, right? It's like I'm over the years, and I'm sure you've heard it too. People have said, Oh, we haven't found a celebrity that can take this message forward. And I am so against that. I'm so against that because, like I said, we have hundreds of thousands of heroes walking this journey. And you have a celebrity who possibly has a brain injury, but you know, you're on their reputation. And if they tank, your whole effort tanks. Yep. And why would we do that when we have people who can speak so beautifully about where they're at and what they've been through? And we need to listen to them and just join forces with them. They are our greatest strength are those voices. 100%. Thank you so much. Please share and download this episode. It's absolutely needed, everybody. We'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and wanna learn more about the Bears platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Our training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neuro rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.